This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Eden Henninen with you for the Country Hour this Wednesday from the Bendigo studio in central Victoria. Lots coming up on the program today. We'll hear from an apple and pear grower in the Goulburn Valley who's working three jobs just so his farm can stay afloat as fruit prices remain low and growers are barely meeting the costs of production. Myself, my partner, we've, we've brought our family farm off my parents thinking that, you know, we, we, we'll do all right at this. We're in the know-how. We know what we're doing. But the last five years have just been absolutely crazy. Our hailstorms, floods, you know, we come in at the end of the drought. It's just been really, really tough. So pretty well working, working three jobs to keep, just to keep the family farm in our name. Working three jobs just to keep the farm going. Are you a grower in a similar position or what are you noticing in the area? Well, on the supermarket shelves, we'd love to hear from you today. Text in on 0467 842 722. But first, let's check in on Rural News First with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Eden. Farmers in the Bega Valley in New South Wales are calling for freight and fodder assistance to manage dry conditions. The state government is saying 22% of that region in the southeast of New South Wales is, quote, drought affected, but not yet classified in drought. Josh Becker reports. Farmers in the Bega Valley are comparing the current dry conditions to the 2019 drought. Vivan Mawini runs sheep and cattle on his property between Bemboka and Candelo in the Bega Valley. Seriously ordinary, I think is the best description. Um, it's as dry as I've seen in a long while and certainly it looks like a grand repeat of uh, 2019. It's seriously dried out. There's no doubt that we're in we're in real strife, and um, times like this, we we need a bit of a hand. So yeah, the sooner the better. Phil Dummett runs cattle at Verona, north of Bega, and he agrees the area is in drought, and is also calling on the state government to introduce freight and fodder subsidies. Water's not a problem as yet, but uh, feed-wise, yeah, we we're feeding every second day. Cattle are holding, but uh, we'll see what happens. Unless you're irrigating, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd say we're 100% in drought at the moment. The biggest cost at the moment with, with the cost of diesel for the trucks, you know, I've got a quote at $6.80 a kilometre to get hay here. Now, that's a big cost, plus on top of your hay, which might be reasonable, but the, it's the, the it's a freight cost which is killing people. And if they if they can bring back the subsidy, which I think they, they should, especially for us on the, the coast here in the Bega Valley, so it's all got to be freighted in, which is a yeah, big cost. And ABARE's latest climate change report is a sobering reality check. Climate change will likely make conditions tougher for Australian farmers and will require significant adaption. However, the projected results vary considerably across farming regions and industries, with losers including croppers in northern New South Wales and WA, plus beef producers in northern Australia. But those farming in southern New South Wales and Victoria could benefit from climate changes. Jared Grenville from ABES says productivity overall is set to fall in the face of global warming unless global emission targets are met. So WA cropping appears to be the one that's most at risk, but it's also one where we're seeing some quite significant changes in technology and practice and so forth as to deal with that. Um, and the northern beef industry with heat and, and pasture growth and is another area which is of particular risk. Um, as we come further south, given the 
high degree of uncertainty around rainfall. Um, there's a bit of a mixed story, and it is possible that what we've experienced over the last 20 or so years could be somewhat similar to what we see in future, um, as long as we can keep the kind of the, the cap on climate change and it doesn't get too out of hand and we keep it to the global goals of around two or preferably under two degrees. A Queensland grazing couple have broken the record for the largest allocation of Australian carbon, carbon credit units awarded to an individual soil carbon project. Carly and Grant Burnham started transitioning their 5,200 hectare property to regenerative practices in 2016 by subdividing paddocks, shortening grazing periods and adding more water points. It means their beef is now carbon negative. For every tonne of livestock carried, 6.6 tonnes of carbon is sequestered. Grant says they've managed the feat despite some tough years. We didn't go into it chasing a huge amount of carbon credits, but the research in these projects has shown that it's possible and across the you know, trying five-year period. So we got our second measurement done in 2021. Yeah, we were able to sequester a fair amount of carbon um, deep into the landscape, yeah, and some of those years were quite dry. We had sort of three out of five of those years that were trying as far as um, drought situations. We got a few other challenges such as dieback, pasture dieback. Mm-hmm. It's shown that good grazing management practices can really help you know, increase the resilience of, of any business. To the top end now, where a retired teacher has started to grow and sell mushrooms in Darwin's rural area. Growing mushrooms in the tropics can be done, but it's not easy, with hot conditions and the threat of unwanted fungi taking over. Carmel Lalay explains how she grows her mushrooms in shipping containers in Lambles Lagoon. So in the buckets is the hay layered with spawn. Uh, At the moment, most of these are white oysters in the bucket, plus I grow a pink, which is Pleurotus jamal, and uh, it's a a tropical mushroom that is grown in Indonesia, central Mexico, and uh, and it's as tough and wild, and I don't have any problems with that, that mushroom. And that wraps up Rural News. Rural news there with Emma Field. Thanks, Emma. Well, it's just ticked over 11 past 12. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. We're starting off the program in horticulture this afternoon. An apple and pear producer in the Goulburn Valley says he needs to work three jobs just to keep his family farm afloat. Jake Anderson says many producers in the region aren't even meeting the cost of production as input input costs rise, but the prices of fruit remain low. I had a chat with him about having to pull out nine hectares of trees and reduce his volumes. So low prices, it's a, it's a tough one at the moment. I'm sort of one of the lucky ones. I actually have fruit. I didn't get hit as hard with hail from last year. Um, so I've got fruit to sell. There's a lot of other guys out here that don't have much fruit to sell and uh, getting slammed with low prices. So it's making things very tough. So there's not um, even an oversupply in the market if, if some people can't even there, sell their fruit? There is no oversupply. I, I think the cost of living um, is, you know, people are choosing what they're going to buy. Everything's gone up and it's just it's making it hard to sell fruit. You're, you produce uh, apples and pears. Just to give listeners an idea on the the price differences, what were you getting, say, a couple of years ago during the peak of the pandemic to to now? The same. <laughs> so prices haven't gone up. Put it that way. Well, we're, farm gate return. 
we're not seeing an increase in farm gate return. But the cost so of production has yeah, gone up. Yeah, oh, 50% minimum. And that's not being reflected in any of the prices. Definitely not. Definitely not. So our, our main, one of our major driving forces this year was uh, we literally doubled our picking costs purely because the government has introduced hourly hire and not piece rate for us picking fruit. So uh, on average, we had workers picking bins of fruit in an hour and a half, and now they're three hours purely because they know they're getting an hourly hourly pay. Then you know, um, so that that's one of our major costs is our picking costs and our pruning costs now that we can't do piece rate. I guess for workers it's a benefit, but not so much when you're looking at the big picture of your business. No, definitely not. If if, if our farm gate prices or you know prices in the supermarket reflected that, well, you know we're back on an even playing field. But right now it's, it's tough. It's real tough. So are you still producing the same amounts that you were before? Nah, we're probably about fifty percent. We probably over the last three to five years we pushed out fifty percent of our farm. We pulled out another nine hectares of fruit this year. Um, just because we can't we can't compete with the hourly hire and like our cost of production to grow the fruit and get it off the tree and into a bin to our packing shed, we just we, we literally made no money. <laughs> it must be a bizarre feeling to to pull out nine hectares of, of hard work that you've put in over the past decade? Oh, it is. It is. But in one way, it's a relief because I'm I'm now back in a situation where I'm probably going to make some money and I'm not just turning turning over because we couldn't afford to pull the trees out. We just made a bold choice to pull the trees out. And now, you know, we can move forward and, and actually concentrate on our, on our better fruit and, and grow better produce because we've got less um, rather than just spinning the wheels and hoping that we may get a better better return next season. Uh, and you've got a generational property. Your, your parents were farmers as well. Um, but you're not just solely a farmer anymore, are you? You've had to look at alternative ways to make money. No, nah, that's right. So I'm, I'm originally a fitter and turner by trade. I've actually done my trade at SPC Ardmona. Um, and then since in the last six to eight years, I've always said I'll move back on the farm. And I have. And now myself and my partner, we've, we've brought our family farm off my parents. Um, thinking that, you know, we, we, we'll we do all right at this. We're in the know-how. We know what we're doing. Um, but the last five years have just been absolutely crazy. Our hailstorms, floods, you know, we come in at the end of the drought. Um, it's just been really, really tough. So pretty well working <laughs> working three jobs to keep just to keep the family farm in our name. And you're not alone, are you? There's so many other pear and apple producers I've been hearing in that region, in the Golden Valley particularly, that some have walked away completely. Yeah, there definitely is. There's, there's guys out there who have just walked away from farms. They, you know, they can't even afford to push the trees out and turn it into dry dry cropland farming. We, it's, it's just an unknown. There's, there's no standards in place. We don't, you know, year to year, we don't exactly know what price return we're going to get. We're, we're governed by the supermarkets. Um, and then it, then it flows on from the supermarkets to the packing sheds down to us and we pretty well get what's left. What would you like to see happen? I would love to see standards put in place. Um, if you can produce a 80 or 90% pack out, uh, judging on where the fruit market is at the time, we need transparency. We need, to be able to, we need a clear vision what the supermarkets are making. We know how much the supermarkets are selling the fruit for, but what are they buying it for? How much... How, how much is it getting filtered down to us? You know, we, we literally, by the time our fruit gets packed, it's been stored, we get all these charges taken out and we get 
get what's left. Um, but if there's more transparency and we could we could gauge and and we've got a set price or a standard price each year, then then we can move forward. How moving forward? You know what will happen to the local industry if producers aren't even meeting the cost of production? I think we're going to go down the same path as dairy farmers. If you if you're not in a large scale, um, you're going to struggle. So we we've seen you know over the last decade, small dairy farmers just get pushed out, and and the big timers come in. And if you're not if you're not big enough to grow mass production, then I think you're really going to struggle. And that was Goulburn Valley apple and pear grower Jake Anderson speaking there. And Coles and Woolies have been contacted for comment. And a response has just come through from Woolworths saying it pays the market price for fresh produce and they're currently paying their apple and pear suppliers more than their fruit 12 months ago. It says it's working to strike the right balance so suppliers receive a fair price and its customers have access to high quality and affordable fresh produce. Well, Fruit Growers Victoria says this is a widespread issue across the state and it's also calling for better transparency in the vendor process with retailers. I had a chat with Growers Services Manager Mick Crisseri a short time ago. This season, obviously, there's been a few growers, there's been a lot of growers actually impacted by hail damage, so their you know, volume of fruit is way down where they, where they need to be. So, yeah, it's a tough time at the minute. And not only issues with weather conditions affecting crops but i just heard from a farmer who said he's pulled out nine hectares of trees because he simply can't make enough money from them and is now working three jobs to keep his farm afloat is this a common story ah uh, yes it is there is there's quite a few guys looking at um getting some employment outside of their farm to, to to keep their farm to be honest yes it's tough going when it's you know when you don't have enough income and, and the cost of production too over you know since covid cost of production has gone up quite significantly. Uh, he, this grower was saying to me his costs have gone up over 50%, but the prices have stayed exactly the same over the past few years. Yeah, they have, yes. The prices really haven't reflected the, the increased um, cost of doing business. And that's that's a real challenge for all growers. It's not, you know, we all talk about cost of living pressures, but the cost of doing business pressure is, uh, is really difficult. Unfortunately, we are, we're price takers in this industry when you're dealing with the perishable fruit. And, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to pass on those extra costs at the retail end, you know. It seems to be, there seems to be a lot of pressure from the retailers to bring the prices of produce down, obviously with the cost of living pressures and keeping the, the fruit cheaper at the supermarket. And that, that really doesn't beg well for our growers because, obviously, we need, we've got certain costs per hectare to grow and pack the fruit that we need to need to make to at least um, you know break even and at the moment it's over the past two years we've, we've been supplying a below cost of production um, this year with the hail hail damage prices have improved a little bit but um, again it's it's nowhere near where where it needs to be and obviously this is a widespread issue with I think Victoria produces almost half of the country's apple and pears yeah. are you having any conversations with retailers about this problem and what they could do moving forward Oh, look, uh, I think the industry and its suppliers are definitely talking to the retailers, but the tender process that that, that, that is that the retailers use to, to buy their product off the different vendors works is pretty heavily weighted in favour of the retailers. The lowest price becomes a price, and that's where we have a real a real issue. I think the the transparency in, the, in how they come to a price for the suppliers um, really needs to be looked at. It's something we've, we've brought up with the retailers, with the ACCC and with the with the federal government, but nothing sort of 
been done to sort of look at that at the moment. But yeah, we've definitely been pushing as an industry to really um, look at the price transparency through our through our chain. The smaller farmers are saying that if this continues, uh, similar to other industries like dairy, that smaller farmers might disappear and it just leaves the larger companies uh, still running that can make at least a profit on this. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge too. It is becoming a lot, you know, more and more challenging for our smaller growers. You know, especially if if they're relying on, you know, they don't have any cold cold storage themselves, or they don't have the ability to pack fruit themselves. Um, it's quite a challenge. They, you know, they're at the mercy of the what the price that the uh, supplier gets from the retailer. And over the last three years, it's been below cost. So um, many guys are <laughs> having to dig deep into their overdrafts to continue operating. And, I know you say that prices are kind of being driven down at the moment because of the cost of living, but historically, why are pears and apples so cheap? Oh, historically, pears have always always been cheap. I, I just it, it's never really demanded a higher price on shelf, and I think you know, depending on what price it's at compared to other other commodities, we've got a lot of other new sort of options of fruits coming in as well. It's really um, making it challenging, especially for pears. Um, apples, you know, apples can fluctuate quite a bit. Normally the value of apples is a lot better than what pears is, but yeah, it's just you know we we have a, an abundance of supply of fruit, and then the retailers, you know, I think there's probably too many vendors into the retailers that can really bring the price down. How many producers are you speaking to that have either left the industry or are reducing their plantings this season? Oh, look, I, look, I would have spoken to about oh, I reckon a, a dozen or so growers that have done the same. So a lot of guys will look at removing blocks and not replanting, leaving it there. They just they, you know, a lot of guys are assessing how many how many hectares they need at a you know, to be able to keep farming and, and make a living, to be honest. You know, there are guys obviously some of the corporate guys are, are also removing some some uh, unprofitable blocks but they're replanting you know, in, in its place where a lot of the smaller guys are sort of uh, removing trees and then just leaving it bare or maybe looking to plant to uh <laughs> to broadacre cropping. In some instances, yeah, I've heard that some have gone into uh, yeah different kinds of farming. Just correct, yeah, and that's that's what's happened with the dairy guys. A lot of dairy guys have shifted over to broad acre cropping because that's obviously been a lot more profitable over the last last few years. Is there an e- export market for for, uh, for fruit? Oh, there is. Seven um, percent of the, uh, the national pear crop is exported. Our, our biggest export market is New Zealand with pears. Uh, we also do a little bit to Canada, but we are. You know, any other sort of into Asia, I think there's potential for growth into Asia. The, the biggest issue we have there is um, our main southern hemisphere competitor is South Africa, and obviously their costs of production are, are quite <laughs> quite a lot less than ours. So sometimes we struggle to compete on price with South African um, pack and pears that get supplied into Asia. But yeah, I think um, apples really apples don't really have. A large export base. There's a few market access issues that you know we still don't have market access in, into China with apples. But um, yeah, I think there's an education piece there as well. If we are to increase our exports, understanding what are the right, right varieties for the intended market. So, what do you think needs to happen to improve conditions here? Oh, look, I, I think we need to uh, reduce what we grow in a way. So I think um, we're going to see um, a reduction in what we grow, but also I think we need to, um, yeah, really look at how the uh, the tender process works with the retailers and their suppliers because that's that's a key. You know, eighty percent of our product goes into retail. We need to work in partnership with with the retailers to make sure that our growers can 
remain viable. And, and I think there's a you know there's an important thing to look at when you look at the retailers' profit. You know, 1.9 billion. There is a certain responsibility, I suppose, to make sure that their supplies continue to be viable and be able to supply. Or eventually, you know, if we keep losing growers, um, we're not going to have enough product to to feed the country. That was Fruit Growers Victoria's Michael Criseri speaking there about the tough conditions many fruit growers are facing in Victoria at the moment. On the text line, uh, someone's texted in saying, totally understandable where the apple grower is coming from. I also worked two other jobs last year for the first time in 29 years. We left blueberries on the bush. It cost more to pick and pack them than what we could sell them for in the wholesale market. Thank you for your text. Are you a grower in a similar position? Would love to hear from you. Text in on 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Well, it's just past 25 past 12 now and moving on to another important issue. As we head into the warmer months, parts of Gippsland will have the first two districts to impose fire danger periods. The fire danger period for East Gippsland and Wellingtonshire will start on October the 9th. Uh, Jason Gribbeneau is a Numerella farmer and CFA captain. Last week he was called to a number of spring fires and there's plenty of demand for fodder with the season drying out. I've fed out a lot more hay than I normally do and, um, yeah, feed's pretty short. So how are you feeling? Yeah, all right, but it's in the back of my mind. What's going to be the next step if it does go in drier and we don't get any rain? We'll have to um, look at selling cattle and... And all that sort of stuff, and preparing as CFA captain of Numerella, I've got to start preparing to um, what our attacks on how, where, and what might be the worst spots that could get affected in our area, and start sort of planning towards that as well. What, what does preparations look like for you guys? Well, we've been preparing some um, meetings to happen at CFA stations. I know Marlow have, have been doing a bit of work on that too, and and we'll. Um, have some public meetings to just make sure everybody are prepared and be a bit organised and things they can do to be prepared. Mm. So we sort of haven't done that the last couple of years because we haven't had to worry too much. But Have you guys had like burn targets in place or anything like that? We've, we've done a bit of um, stuff along the highway out towards now and now there. We've done a few little sections. Unfortunately, it's hard these days to get a burn to happen for CFA. There's a lot of red tape, you would say, to make it happen, and it takes a lot of work. I know at the showgrounds at Numerella, we've been trying for probably 10 years to get a section burnt, which we actually did manage to get a section burnt this year, but not very big. But um, it's, yeah, it's just ridiculous, the red tape and stuff to, to protect a town and try and do something for the residents of the town. It's it's um, just so hard to get it to happen now. The CFA captain says one of the fires they attended last week became difficult to manage because different departments were involved. Probably the rail trail was, was our biggest problem yesterday because there's a lot of fuel load on it and the rail trail is a different department to the Crown land and state forest so it, it doesn't get burnt. That's what really got the fire going yesterday. It got into that rail trail area and it, yeah, that's when it spotted straight across the high, like, quite a distance out of it so yeah i don't know you just i suppose we just got to keep at it that's all we can do and keep trying jeffrey johnson is an orbost farmer and also a cfa captain for his district he says there's plenty of grass around but it's drying out quickly at the moment we're getting showers of rain and um our grass season on that kite 
kiwi is just starting to grow again now, so we'll probably get a bit of greenness around the place. Our flats look pretty good. Uh, our water table's still up pretty high, but um, as we know, like this week and Friday week ago or fortnight ago, you know, we had up to 50 kilometre gust winds, and that certainly um, dries and takes some moisture out of the ground. Also, you know, um, coming over winter, we had some really, really big frosts that killed all the kike, and which is, you know, there's a lot of dry kike around still at the moment. So they're certainly all, all parts of, of our fuel load on the ground, um, which, you know, on the wrong day and the right weather, it um, can do all sorts of things. You'd have to look at it and think, you know, like, yes, it is dry, but, you know, it's probably going to get a lot drier. If this keeps up in the same pattern and we come December, where the weather warms up and the, you know, the nights are a lot warmer than they are now, um, it certainly you know, shows signs that, yeah, we, we, could, we could be in for a tough season. Can you talk me through a bit of the work you've been doing with the local community? One of the problems that, that I can see, restrictions haven't come in yet, but once the restrictions come in, you'll see some more fires start up because people try and burn clean before the restrictions end. Um, and that can cause dramas because, you know, they're not out properly and all this kind of stuff. And we urge people who, uh, Mikey understands very well, that, you know, we urge people when you light a fire, stay with it the whole time. Make sure it's not going to go overnight or the winds. You know, look at your weather. Um, your weather pattern is one of your biggest things you need to look at. And it's not just for the day you're lighting it, it's for the next five days or six days, you know. Um, because it does go underground sometimes, you know. It gets onto a tree root or whatever or something... Um, you know, and it's not out properly and it just smoulders away and and um, and we've had them fires over the years, you know, the Tosta Reef fires and all this kind of stuff where, you know, months later or weeks later the, the fire occurs on that bad day and pops its head up because it's not out. Um, so there's things that farmers can do if they um, if they think they've got a, you know, a hot spot in their ground, they're burnt and want to check us. Um, we've got um, infrared cameras now that we could, you know, they can only got to... We can go out and run a tick camera over it and just and help them out like that, you know, and for people who are living in the areas that, you know, that with bush and everything, you know, clean trees and uh, make sure you're spouting right and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of things on the, on the website that can really help people. We encourage you to clean up and do some burnings and that. We certainly do. We, we don't say to you, no, no burn, or, you know, or you're silly because you burnt today or whatever, but, I mean, you've got to watch the weather and, um, and you need a long forecast for the week when you're going to do it. One of the biggest problems we have is that people leave them. You know, they've gone to have a cup of tea, or oh, going to have lunch, and they come back, and all of a sudden that fire's kind of meeting them at the back door, or you know, or took off in the grass and stuff. So, you know, you need to be with your fire, and um, preparedness is, is probably the key to it. And that was Orbos farmer and CFA captain Geoffrey Johnson fin- finishing that report from Millie Spencer. And on the text line, uh, in regards to our earlier story about fruit prices being quite low, uh, someone texted in saying it doesn't matter what it is unless you achieve economy of scale, you are a not-for-profit organisation from an anonymous texter there. Well, we're just a bit over 20, uh, 12.30 now. Let's head to news headlines with Jean Bell. Good afternoon, Jean. 
Good afternoon, Eden. A Victoria Police Family Violence Unit is investigating the circumstances of a fatal shooting in the western Victorian town of Ararat yesterday morning. Emergency services were called to a property on Kennel Road at about quarter to twelve yesterday following reports a woman had been shot. The 87-year-old woman died at the scene and a 91-year-old man who was taken to hospital with life-threatening injuries has since died. Police say the man and the woman were known to each other and detectives are not looking for anyone else in relation to the incident. An Irish farm worker has pleaded guilty to driving negligibly and under the influence of alcohol, causing the death of his work colleague in southwest Victoria. Mark Doty had been drinking when he failed to stop at a stop sign on a country road in Cobden on June 5th last year, causing a collision with another vehicle. His workmate, fellow Irish national Max Boggs, died at the scene, while the local woman driving the other vehicle was also injured. In the Warrnambool County Court this morning, Mr Doty pleaded guilty to culpable driving causing death, negligent driving causing serious injury and exceeding the alcohol limit. He will be sentenced tomorrow. Central Victorians say it's exciting to think their local MP Jacinta Allen could soon be announced as the next Premier. Bendigo Bowls Club President Jeff Briggs says Ms Allens has been a great local MP, but the club has missed out through the cancelled Commonwealth Games and he says that's still a huge disappointment. For more news and stories, search for your local ABC station online. Jean Bell there. Thank you for news headlines. Now let's check in on what's happening with weather across the state. I'm joined now by senior forecaster Brian McPherson. Good afternoon, Jean. Uh, good afternoon, Brian. <laughs> good afternoon, Ethan. <laughs> How's it going? What's happening across the state at the moment? Yeah, um, it's a cool to mild day across most of the state with some southerly winds, uh, partly cloudy in the south, but um, north of the ranges, it's it's fairly sunny. Um, so not much in the way of rainfall around today, though, with that uh, just a bit of cloud in that in the south, but nothing really deep. Uh, and then for people looking out for rainfall, it's not really good news um, until the middle of next week. Uh, so I think this uh, dry end to September is really going to help us um, lock in this September as one of the driest Septembers on record for Victoria, where it ranks exactly. We'll have to wait till um, early October to find out, but it's um, it's looking pretty dry for the next few days, um, with a high pressure system sitting over us and just generally warming things up towards the weekend. Um, a weak front crosses Tassie might cool things down a tiny bit on Friday, but then it's not till Sunday when another weak front grazes the south. Might get a mill at most um, in the southwest or central districts on Sunday with that, but really not much around there. And then Monday itself is dry and warm as well. Um, and then once we get into the middle of next week, there's a lot of uncertainty, but there is a fairly decent system coming through. Um, could get quite windy and expecting showers throughout the state between Tuesday and Thursday, but exactly how much rainfall is uh, well up in the air at this stage. Um, if any of your listeners are digging around on the um, the models on the web, uh, there's probably some people that have seen the uh, European model output uh, that's quite interesting, showing you know a couple of hundred mil days over eastern Victoria. We're not really um, counting that just yet. It's in the range of possibilities, but uh, it's definitely an outlier. Uh, what, what is that for, for the months ahead? When, when is that forecasted? <laughs> No, that's uh, for each of Wednesday and Thursday. Oh, um, right. No, so, yeah, that's... Um, but I know there's been a bit of talk about it because it's uh, it's out there on the web, but it is, um, it's definitely an outlier at the moment. Um, but we are expecting some rainfall across the state, but probably at this stage, uh, more likely looking at uh, more the sort of 1 to 10 mils in the west 
during that sort of Wednesday period, maybe 5 to 20 mils in the east, getting up to 30, 30 plus mils around the ranges in the east on Wednesday. Um, but if that a deeper system does develop, we'll be looking at it a bit more closely and there is a chance of some more rainfall uh, on top of that. That's what I was going to ask. I know farmers are desperate for some rain before <laughs> the weather really dries out. Looking at, you know, perhaps a few weeks ahead, is there anything on the horizon that you could tell us about? Yeah, look, our um, models are not really that good for, you know, much more than sort of seven to ten days. Uh, we get into the climate outlook sort of area then, um, and then the climate outlook, like as you well know, it's uh, we're in El Nino and the Indian Ocean um, is not behaving as well for if we want rain. Uh, so this is the broader outlook for the, the weeks further out than that is for warm and dry as well. Right. Any warnings across the state? No, just a uh, coastal wind warning for tomorrow for Gippsland waters. And uh, just quickly, um, so we looked at rain uh, and warnings. Is there anything else you need to tell us? No, it's a it's a fairly quiet um, end of the week and uh, looking like a fairly warm grand final day for those that are interested in the football. We look forward to that. Well, senior forecaster Brian McPherson, thanks for for the update. Not a problem. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Now let's jump back into a story from yesterday about the Victorian Farmers Federation issue. The Grains Group leader now says nothing is off the table as the group considers what to do after the Dairy Group's policy councillors resigned en masse yesterday. Grains Group members have led a rebellion against the VFF President Emma Germano this year, launching two failed bids to have her sacked. And yesterday, dairy members walked away from the organisation to join a new independent lobby group accusing the leadership of a lack of consultation and unfair distribution of membership dollars. Western Victorian farmer Craig Henderson says he shares the dairy group's complaints about the VFF leadership. Well, this is a continuation on with what's been going on in the VFF under uh, the current leadership. To see this happening is extremely disappointing and, and not to negotiate or try and work through some of the issues um, is just being too bloody-minded, I reckon, in my opinion. is So you should be able to sit down around the table, work through things. Um, but understanding of being on the board, understanding how the board works, understanding how the current leadership works, I can understand the... Uh, a dairy coming to this conclusion. Is it something Grains Group members are contemplating doing? Probably all I could say there is nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. A couple of key complaints that Mark Billing raised were about a lack of dairy farmer membership dollars going back to benefit dairy farmers and also a, a perceived lack of consultation from the VFF leadership. Uh, do you share those complaints? Absolutely. There's there's no question that's going on. You know, we've been writing since the Mildura meeting in March, we've been writing to the management asking for uh, them to explain where our levies are going. And to this point now, it's been totally unsatisfactory. So those levies, in our opinion, aren't going to the correct places and uh, it's going to run the machine rather than run the grains council. And as as Mark uh, said there on his interview, $10,000 to run the organisation is nothing but a joke, absolute joke. You know, we've been holding meetings on private venues trying to cut costs. Uh, the people putting the meetings on, the grains council members, 
have been catering ourselves, trying to cut the cost, being a part of cutting the costs. Um, and yet we're seeing massive amounts of money being spent on lawyers, basically through stupidity. With the news this week that uh, perhaps large portions of the dairy membership could move to a new organisation, the VFF without dairy farmer members, it, is it a viable organisation? Look, it, it always will be with good management. Um, and I'm hoping that this is a, a glitch in the system where we can uh, fix it and the loss of any income in the organisation under the current management and financial position of the organisation is uh, is always a concern. You don't see levies not going to this, the appropriate spots for no reason. And once again, I'd like to know where they're going. But the lack of, of um, uh, consultation with each of the um, commodities and listening to the members is just not on at the moment. The push from Grains Group members, as I mentioned, is to remove the current leadership. Uh, if that did happen, would that solve the problems or would problems remain? I honestly believe that. I honestly believe that if we got rid of the uh, a couple of people or, uh, in the organisation, it would change the culture, it would change the um, representative nature of the organisation um, to see at the moment the current board is to be flat out representing 15% of the members because dairy is going to be fragmented. We've got chicken meats, got basically next to no me- uh, members. Um, horticulture hasn't got many. If you look at the grains and dairy and livestock, it probably makes up three quarters of the membership and uh, we're just getting crueled all the time. Do Victorian farmers need to have a VFF? Absolutely, yes. Um, you can have a you know, single commodity type organisation, that's one thing and important, but we need to cross commodities, whether it's you know, the rates, roads, um, IR, uh, registration on uh, machinery or fuel taxes or whatever. They're all cross commodity um parts of the organisation which is important but at the same time you've got to have your own identity for each each commodity and of grains now a good example of that is when we're going for two-day payment for payment security it probably wasn't the preferred option for say end users um which could be the feedlot industry or the dairy industry and chicken industry, but for grains it was a really important issue. So that's why you've got to have your your own commodities is to push what's best for your industry and then jointly get together for the major, whether it's national or, or state issues, we need the, the VFF to represent us. This infighting within the VFF that's been running for, for quite a while now, how much has it undermined the organisation's ability to to do what it's meant to do? Oh, Definitely, I know, speaking from Grain's perspective, we used to have two full-time people and we were achieving uh, good things for the industry and working on cross-commodity issues 
um, that helped the whole VFF. The Grains was was doing that with the two staff they had. Then uh, we were stripped down to one, and now we've got 0.6 of the staff looking after Grains. The main thing is we've got to build the relationships with government to get the good outcomes for our industry, and I feel at the moment this is not happening. So where to from here? Well, we've got to put a bit of a broom through, quite frankly. We've got to uh, clean the act up. Is it a difficult job, though, a poison chalice to to try and lead such a, I suppose, diverse organisation? Well, the best way to do is get everybody in the one room and listen. That's the best thing to do for a starter, and then you move forward from that position. Um There's been a perception that Grains had too much power in the organisation. There's a perception there of that with with, uh, the current leadership. Um, It's been... uh, If you look what's happened to us in the Grains group, absolutely torn apart, and we had the funds. We put the funds there, and we were doing cross-commodity work, and it's just disgraceful what's happened to us. And that was VFF Grains Group President Craig Henderson speaking there with Angus Furley. And on the news yesterday that United Dairy Farmer members have resigned from the VFF and joined their own breakaway group, Dairy Farmers Victoria, I'm joined now by Rick Gladigo, President of Australian Dairy Farmers. Rick, welcome to the Country Hour. Uh, good afternoon, Eden, and thanks for having me. I'm sure you would have heard that most of the Policy Council of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria have resigned to join this new group. UDV is a member of your national body, so what does that mean for you? Uh, well, UDV slash VFF are, are the member of, of ADF. They're still the member of ADF, and so that hasn't changed in any way. So uh, uh, we continue on. Have, they, have you been in contact with the, this new group? No, we haven't had any discussions with Dairy Farmers Victoria at all and ever since, or probably going back, was the middle of the year when it was announced Dairy Farmers of Victoria were created. Um, I actually made a a call not to actually, and I expressed this to Mark at the time, that I was not going to be discussing an ADF, we're not going to be discussing uh anything with DFV, DFV at the time, um, and, and we still haven't, because uh, UDV, VFF are the, are the member of, of ADF under the Constitution, and, and that's how it still is. So, And that's how we still are. I, I haven't, and ADF hasn't been in any discussions with Dairy Farmers Victoria at all. Lots of acronyms there. Hopefully listeners can catch up with all of these different groups. But if the UDV can continue to sit on your council, even though a lot of the members have moved across to this new group, how will that work? Well, those those members of, nas- of our national council are actually appointed by the the regions, and so in Victoria you've got the three regions, as in Southwest Victoria and Northern Victoria and, and Gippsland. So the members in those regions actually appoint those people to sit on our national council, and and. Uh, as long as these people are members of UDV, they're they're allowed to be sitting on National Council. Victoria makes up about 64% of milk production in the country. If there's a splintering of farmer lobby groups in this state, what will the national implications of that be? Well, I mean, end of the day, it's up to those dairy farmers as to who they they want to actually represent them. So, uh, as I said, uh, we still have VFF, UDV are our members and, and that's the way it is and we haven't changed that in any way. So 
Uh, if there's another organisation, obviously they'll probably want to speak to us about that. Um, but it'll be up to uh, up to the organisation, etc., as to, to who that actually will be. But at, at this at this point of time, it's still the VFF UDV, and and that's what it will be in the foreseeable future. Are you not concerned at all about the split? Uh, as I said, it's it's up to the dairy farmers to make that call. My, I'm concerned about the fact that uh, VFF are not paying the levy money that has been collected from dairy farmers to, to go to ADF. And so now, that's, that's my concern. Let's move on to that issue. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour. We're speaking with Rick, Glad- Rick Gladigo, the president of Australian Dairy Farmers. Uh, looking at a dispute particularly between yourself and the Victorian Farmers Federation, just a bit of history about this time last year, the VFF notified you that it wanted a review of your fee structure. Um, they were concerned that membership fees were extremely high and since then they haven't paid any fees to your organisation. What do you make of that? Well, it's extremely disappointing. The, as, we, as I just said before, the, uh, the VFF are still collecting uh, a portion of of levies that is to go to ADF, which the members asked, the Victorian dairy farmers asked for back in 2011 for an extra extra amount to go towards ADF to pay that levy fee. So VFF are still collecting that money, and um, but they're not handing it on. So no, that's that's our concern is to say, well, you know, you're getting the money, you're not stopping taking it from those farmers. They want the money to go to ADF, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't be paying it. Um, you need to be forwarding it on. Uh, the VFF claim that you've refused to meaningfully engage with them other than some very expensive mediation, which I think cost $14,000 a day. Have you refused to meet with them? No, we haven't refused to meet with them at all. We've obviously been looking at what's been going on, on the uh, in the VFF camp at the moment uh, and the issues that are there and and since this of course they've had a few changes of CEOs and interim CEOs along the line as well so that all makes it a little bit harder of just who we're actually dealing with at times but we've obviously uh, responded to their letters and as you see and the members will have seen in that communique they put out yesterday of the letter from ADF back to VFF of, um, of saying look we're willing to have a chat you know, we believe that there needs to be a mediator at the time to to do this, and when we're talking you know, a multi-billion-dollar industry, let's not just use some um, some uh, generic brand mediator. Let's let, we want someone who is who knows what to do. So, so we've gone down that path. They've agreed to to the mediation, um, but then they've after we've pushed it to say, well, and who did you choose? Obviously, in the letter we've put three names forward. Um, they finally come back and, and chose one. We went went there and said, OK, this is what it's going to cost. Uh, and now they've sort of re- rebuked on that one and says, well, we don't want to pay that money to do it. So we're still waiting to actually hear back from VFF on this because we've said, well, you know, we'll find a, someone who's certainly got the qualifications uh, to actually uh, to, to lead that mediation. And right. we're still waiting. We'll see. Time will tell. Rick Gladigo, President of Australian Dairy Farmers. We better leave it there. Thank you for joining the Country Hour. Thanks for having me. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Now, last week I had the pleasure of heading along to the Royal Melbourne Show. One of the most amazing events to witness is the wood chopping. So, with la- But with native timber harvesting coming to an end in Victoria, all the wood for the event has to come in from interstate. I had a chat with 19-year-old William Hoyle, who was competing in the under-21s wood chopping event this year. 
they've got the wood chopping on this year. It's the first four days of the show. They've had problems with the logging Victoria being closed off, but they're making it work in these tough times. Big forest, big thanks to them. Yeah, so you're getting wood in from interstate. None of it's coming from Victoria this year, is it? No, it's actually all come over from Tasmania. Yeah. Um, and what, what does everyone make of that? Uh, it's, it's tough and trying times, but the Shari Society has, have done a good job putting it on and they've gone through a lot of paperwork for it, I think, yeah. Is there enough? Yeah, there is. Yeah. But it's just getting harder and harder, that's the only thing. Just always trying to find more alternatives. We can hear some of the competition on in the background here. Lawrence O'Toole is currently competing, one of the best woodchoppers in the country. I hear you're not doing too bad yourself. You're, you're one of the top-ranked under-21 woodchoppers, is that right? Yeah, in Australia. We have a really good age group coming through with a lot of depth. There's a lot of good choppers that are going to come through in the next 10 years. And you've just competed in Adelaide. How did you go? I went pretty good. I actually cut for the New Zealand under-21s team because I hold a Kiwi passport. We went three zip on the Aussies. It was a pretty good feeling. Oh, really? Well. Yeah. And, and what are you competing in this year at the show? Um, I'm in any event from the standing block event, the vertical log that you chop, and the underhand event, the one between your legs. How do you think you'll go this year? Oh, I'm hoping to do pretty good. I'm half burnt out, actually. I've had a big past two months in the way of wood chopping. It's a, it's a pretty physical sport, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a lot more demanding than people think, and it takes a lot of skill and training. So do you train for this all year, or do you compete at certain times of the year? I try and train all year. A lot more through the off-season, just trying to keep on my fitness and just keep my eye in. What's involved in being good at this sport? Um, well, you, I'm not the biggest woodchopper. I'm probably the most anorexic, but it's more or less just style and using every bit of power you have and just having the right technique to go with it. And uh, I saw your dad's... And uh, that was William Hoyle, 19-year-old woodchopper there, uh, speaking to me at the Royal Melbourne Show. Let's head to Leon Gathic Cattle today with Brendan Fletcher. Brendan Fletcher, good afternoon, Brendan. G'day, Eden. There were 980 fewer of 350 with most of the usual buyers present but not all operating in a cheaper market. Quality was limited to a couple of pens as secondary cattle made up most of the sale. Young cattle sold up to 100 cents cheaper. Manufacturing steers slipped 20 to 50. Cows lost 15 to 30. Well, bulls sold firm. A few vealers sold from 100 to 160 cents. Yearling trade steers 145 to 210. The heifer portion 230 to 240. Ground steers and bullocks, 200 to 272. Manufacturing steers, 100 to 163. Most light and medium weight cows, 50 to 100 cents. Heavyweights, 85 to 160. Heavy bulls, 160 to 234. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thank you, Brendan. Now let's head to Hamilton Lambs with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Eden. Lamb numbers are more than halved this week at Hamilton, decreasing to 2,250, and the sheep numbers were also light at 330 head. Half the lambs or more were shorn and displayed very good quality. Despite this, the market was firm to slightly softer by $5 per head, with the shorn lambs being least affected. 
Very good trade lambs between 18 and 26 were making between 3.20 and 400 cents a kilogram carcass weight, with the top lambs making to $111. Sheep were... Uh, cheaper this week by 10 to 15 dollars per head with the heavyweights being most affected light lambs 12 to 16 kgs made from 12 to 50 dollars with trade lambs 18 to 22 from 46 to 88 medium weight lambs from the trade to 26 made from 70 to 102 with hoggets stopping at 51 heavy crossbred ewes sold to 25 merino ewes to 20 and the weathers topped out at 28 dollars at hamilton and this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thank you, Chris. And finally to Horsham Sheep uh, with Graham Pimer. Good afternoon, everyone. An overall drop in numbers to 8,450 this week with 4,200 young lambs, 1,450 old lambs, so about 1,500 sheep. Quality was mostly good with fewer heavy young lambs and more lighter weights penned. An easier market on the lighter weights. Back to $5 a head. Medium and heavy trade weight young lamb sold from 104 to 118. Heavier weight sold from 128 to 143. The old lambs mixed in quality sold from 46 to 95 for the trade weights. Heavier draft sold to $149 for an outstanding pen of heavyweight lambs. Merino lamb sold mostly from 13 to 44. Restockers paid from 19 to 75 for young lambs. Hoggets sold from 20 to 44 for the merinos and the crossbreds made to $20. Sheep quality was mostly good, covering all weights. With more competition this week, they sold a few dollars dearer. Merino ewes made to $53 for ewes in a big skin. Crossbreed ewes made to $38. The medium sheep sold from $16 to $26, average 90 cents. Hoggets made to $44. Ram sold to $1. It's been Graham Palmer at Horsham from LA. Thank you, Graham, for the Horsham markets there. Let's head to the text line before we finish up today. There's lots I didn't get to get through through the program. Uh, it says, seems to me that the only people complaining about VFF leadership are VFF blokes. Makes you wonder if they have an issue with women in leadership positions. Thank you for that text, Lindsay. We're hearing a lot, another text here, we're hearing a lot from opposing breakaway groups. Why don't we hear from the current VFF lead- leadership? Right of reply. Cheers, Ron. Thank you for that text, Ron. Another text here is Emma is now running into what's wrong with the VFF, a boys club with too much self-interest from all the groups involved. No one trusts each other in any real sense, but Emma is not going away from this reform agenda in the right way. The VFF is broken and its structure with local branches in and out are dated and from a place in history that no longer exists. Uh, All the parties are now only taking and thinking from their narrow commodity perspective. But for Derry, it's time for the ADF to step up because they are now in an even worse worse position regarding the process and viability of any real outcomes. Concerned ex-member there. And one more text there. Uh, The best thing that can come from this is the VFF falls apart and they are all starting again if that was even possible. Thank you for your text today. That's about all the time we've got for on the Country Hour. In the meantime, you can head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural. You can catch up on the latest stories, including one that I didn't uh, tell you about yesterday from Angus Verley on this new dairy organisation and the Dairy Farmers Victoria breaking away from the Farmers Federation. And also an interesting one on drought preparation starting as early as the regions prepare for the El Nino impacts. And as we heard from weather today, does look like some dry weather ahead. And don't forget, you can listen back to this podcast uh, if you can search online or download the ABC Listen app. Well, it's news time now. It's coming up to one o'clock.